Let's pray, and then we'll look into Genesis 42. Father, thank you for uh, just a wonderful night to come out and be together, to gather. You love to gather your people. It's important to you that we come together, Lord. I know many of us have our personal studies. We even have small group, but you desire the church to gather. You've always gathered your people. And so we thank you that you put that in our hearts to be here tonight. We can look into your word, be encouraged, be challenged, even exhort it, Lord. We thank you that the word is true. We, we don't have to try to defend it. We can just simply stand upon it. This is what God's word says. And so we believe that, Lord. So secure our hearts greater today and help us walk with you more tomorrow. May we be more like your son each and every day, Lord. We thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. We're working our way through the book of Genesis. We're getting close. There's 50 chapters. We're at 42. Trying to do a chapter a week, um, sometimes two for a chap- two weeks for a chapter. But today we'll tackle 42. This is an interesting chapter. You'll remember that we left off last week with Joseph becoming the man, right? He became the man that uh, Pharaoh realized from his interpretation of the dreams that there was no one like him who else could do this job. Um, and so Joseph is installed as second command uh, to Pharaoh. He is really running the world in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and God took him through such difficulties to bring him to this point. But the saga is not done. There's difficulties within the family, extreme difficulties. You think your family's got difficulty? Well, this one has a lot of problems. Brothers tried to kill brother. There's no repentance. There's nothing been solved. And these these problems are going to come to a head as we look at these chapters. But as you think about this chapter, I entitled this passage, Repentance in the Will of God, because as I studied it, I began to realize that God is always after repentance. Repentance leads to reconciliation. Reconciliation leads to joy, to what God has. Um, That brings about his will. And And I think what happens in this chapter is God is using Joseph to bring about repentance. He's bringing about reconciliation with the ultimate goal to protect this family and certainly the seed of Christ in the midst of Egypt. Now, finding God's will can be trying at times. Um, I've often told people, said, you know, Finding God's will is, is difficult, not because God is trying to hide it from us. He isn't doing a nut and shell game like, you know, hey, try to figure it out. It's us that makes it difficult. We bring sin into the situation that, that mars the view of what God is doing. We, we're unrepentive on issues. We blame shift problems. Uh, that makes it difficult to find God's will often. God is not hiding. He, he may withhold certain things to bring you to a point of trusting him, but he's not a God who hides things from us. And so often we find ourselves struggling to know him and what he is doing because of our own sin. And you think about him, God's perfect, he's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, he knows all those things, and we're very limited, very limited. You know, we're, we're hoping to get through tonight. And we're looking forward to maybe some things we have planned tomorrow, but we're not to look too far past that. But God knows all things. I I, I got led to a thought um, as I started chasing this down and thinking about what was happening here in in the scope of repentance. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is really prophesying what's going to happen to the nation. Before anything happens, he begins to tell them that they are going to turn on the God that brought them out of Egypt. They're going to leave the God that did all these things for them. They're going to actually bow down and worship false gods. He's telling them all this before anything happens. And then he says this in verse 29. But from there, from that disaster that you're going to get yourself into, You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. And I I, I, I ran into that today as I was studying. I thought, oh Lord, that's the truth of so many of us, right? We get ourselves into some disasters, don't we? we? We don't obey God. We don't fulfill roles that he has called us to do. And we find ourselves in disaster. But he is not far from us. And if you seek him, 
If you call for him, he will answer you. And particularly if you come with a repentive heart, and that's what it means to seek him with your heart and your soul, meaning not, oh God, give me, give me, give me, give me. God, come to God with repentance. And I believe that's what he's after in this text. And I think Joseph is part of that means. He's, he's certainly a means to bring Israel into the safety of Egypt, but he's also a means that God is showing mercy and grace to undeserving sinners. And if there's 10 young men who are undeserving, it is his brothers. And yet God will show grace to them. But the question will be, as we finish out the book of Genesis in the next few weeks, will they repent? And what will it take to move them to repentance? These are good questions for us. What does it take to make me repent of issues in my life, sin that I have not dealt with? What will God do to to bring me to repentance? So today our text will teach us the grace of God extended through Joseph, and it will also show hardening hearts of sinners who won't repent. But don't forget that great verse, and this is, I want want to catch this theme as we go through that great verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Do not forget is the kindness of God who always brings you and I to repentance. Other, everything else is a false view of God. Well, God doesn't like me. Or I'm afraid of God, so I'll repent. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And we see that in this text. I think sometimes we'll look at this text with Joseph and we think possibly Joseph's messing with his brothers. But God's doing something far more than Joseph messing with his brothers. Let's look at a couple of thoughts tonight, just three of them. We'll try to break this text down. Um, number one, living with guilt and fighting repentance. Living with guilt and fighting, with, fighting repentance. Well, 20 plus years since Joseph was sold now as a slave in Canaan. He sold and in the Potiphar's home and served there and then into prison. And now seven years of plenty has gone by. Seven years of blessing have gone by. So it's 20 years since that day he was sold somewhere around that. He was 17 years old and now he is 30. He's overseeing Egypt. And the amazing blessing that was pulled out of, of all that Joseph went through lands Joseph in this amazing stewardship of feeding the world. Of feeding the world. And we'll see that as the text unfolds even more. So it's hard to know if Joseph understood all that God's doing. I thought about that. Joseph, did you know all that God was doing? And I tend to think, after studying this, I think he, I think he knew God was in this. And I think he understood his dream now, and he's beginning to grasp things. But, I, but here's why I believe he understood God's hand was it. Because his desire was to please God. And let me just put a little point of application before I move on here. When, when our desire is to walk in a worthy way and to please God, we find ourselves enjoying his will. I want you to think through that with me just a moment. When our desire is to seek to please the Lord versus trying to use God to gain something from him. I'll go to church, you'll bless my business. Uh, or whatever it may be, right? A number of things Christians often barter with God on. But when we seek simply to please God, you are worthy of my life. I want to walk in a worthy way of my calling, calling me to salvation, and walk with you in a pleasing manner, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 or 11, somewhere in there. Um, You begin to understand him a little more. And I think Joseph, because of his love for God, his love for Yahweh, I think he understands what God's doing. And I think he's right on track with him as he deals with his brothers. Now, this is a, this is a major famine. Look at chapter 41, verse 57. Last verse right before 42 starts. It says, The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. So here... This famine is, is amazing. We talked about this a little bit last week. This is a, this is a global warming that, that the libs would have just went crazy over. Um, I don't know who they would have blamed it on at this point because there were no SUVs, but they would have figured out something. Um, but it's affecting everything, and it's God doing it. God's doing this. Now, uh, doubtlessly, Joseph, excuse me, Jacob has a family meeting back in Canaan, 
and, and he brings the sons together, and, and, and you've got to think about what they're going through. This famine's hit them. They most likely have a lot of dry farming go on, going on. Um, there's no wells to pump water, so it either has to be flood irrigated or you're dependent on the rain. And so uh, they have a heavy farming uh, operation. They have a heavy grazing operation, and they're dependent upon rainfall, and that is gone. So Jacob's family and his operation were the... Uh, this massive operation, they required a tremendous amount of land to run cattle and sheep and goats and all that they have. Remember we talked about this before. It's, you look at acreage depending on what it produces of how many animals per acre you can run on it. And if it's arid, it's, it's, you, know, you could be 10 acres to a cow. I mean, you, you can't, it gets big, right? So you're covering a lot of, lot of ground. And so the family is probably through the years they've stored grain and seed stock in strategic places so they can feed um, all of this uh, livestock that makes Jacob the rich man he is. Now, local vendors probably supplied Jacob. He probably had a, a great set of vendors. He was a wealthy man. He could pay, pay for uh, the feed. And, and most likely those suppliers even kept up with Jacob for a while during this famine because he had money. And so he could buy grain for his animals and he could buy feed and seed stock and the things he, did, he needed for a, while, uh, for a while. But after a while, this famine seems to be so severe, as we see at the end of chapter 41, that the resources probably dried up. And, and even these local and even foreign suppliers who he did business with uh, or caravans that would come and bring seed from Egypt, they soon quit because Joseph's controlling all of that. And the family surely choked out many businesses. Now, it seems reasonable that Jacob had probably many contracts from Egypt. Think about this. Egypt's a massive country. Remember, we said last week there there are some estimates where they're farming a thousand square miles in Egypt. Well, they're putting up tons of grain. And you imagine the, the cities and the building that's going on, pyramids that are built and so forth that are going on. Jacob's probably, this is my guess, he's probably got animal contracts, meat supplying for Egypt. And so a lot of what he's doing is he's selling livestock that ends up in Egypt that feeds the masses of this nation. But most likely Jacob had not been to Egypt himself. He probably worked in relationship with traders and brokers. But clearly now was the time to send his sons. He's got to crack a deal. This, this operations of his is going to die if he does not get seed and grain for all of these livestock. And so his, his goal here is to send his boys to, to crack some kind of deal, to broker a deal so this operation can survive this famine. He does not know how long it is. He does not know what's going to go on. He's probably living um, season by season. It looks like it's going to be another dry one. We need to crack some kind of deal. So look at verse 1 and 2 as we get going through here. Now Jacob saw that there was, a great, there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. So Jacob brings his sons together from their widespread field duties, right? They're out there caring for this large operation. And when Jacob mentions Egypt, which is fascinating, you look at this verse, the sons look at each other. Now, obviously, Jacob did not know the deceit their brothers had been carrying for 20 years now. But at the mention of Egypt, notice these guys are looking at each other. That's the last place they want to go. The brother they, they were going to kill was sold into slavery. They have lied repeatedly to Father Jacob of his death. And now they're getting sent to Egypt. Now, Egypt is a massive country. Um, probably in their way, they're thinking, well, maybe nothing will come about this. But just that term, when you're guilty and you've not repented, somebody can mention one word and you go, ugh. And you can kind of see that happening in this text. Look at verse 21 and 22 just to show you. We'll get to this in a minute, but I just want to show you. And they said to one another, this is after... Uh, they're getting exposed. Joseph is testing them. Truly we are guilty concerning our brother. This guilt is there. 20 years of guilt, of not repenting of something. It's right underneath the surface because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. That is serious words, isn't it? They were going to kill him if it was not for Reuben. 
And, and, and now he's re, they're rehearsing this because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with it, yet we would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. You do something bad, you get something bad back. Look, they're just right out of Egypt. Why not join the karma movement? Right? Bad things, you did bad, it happens to bad. God isn't in the picture yet with these, with these men. Verse 22, Reuben said to them saying, did I not tell you do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. It is fascinating how shallow the guilt is underneath the skin here. Boys, why are you looking at each other? Egypt, oh, you could just see their hearts start to palpitate as they thought about going down here. They had been in anguish over what they had done, but they would not admit it. And they saw the anguish of their brother. And yet 20 years they have suppressed this truth. But it's clear their hearts were still hard when you study this. They're unrepentive, having told the lie of Joseph's death over and over probably. In fact, worked very hard to keep it within those 10 boys. When we think about our hearts and repentance there's so much to understand here, and I just want to make a note here. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance is, is the program of God. He, he wants us to repent of our sin. He, he, he does that. He woos us and brings us and draws us. No one comes to the Father unless he draws us. Um, to himself and but part of that and, and the main thing that happens faith comes and awakens you and then you turn to repentance where repentance is not just for the lost repentance is also for the saved and we find ourselves very hard-hearted at times second corinthians paul's dealing with a church that he's hoping is repentive after his first letters to them and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, right? Well, I'm sorry, I got caught. But that you were, listen to the terminology, listen to the verbs here. That you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See, there's a difference. Right now the boys are going, ooh, I told you so. We shouldn't have done that. And they're blaming each other, but there's no one saying, oh God, look what we have done. Will you forgive us? There's a constant hiding of it. And this is the difference between people, all of us, who don't want to own our sin. And so we stay in this very, very difficult place. The verse goes on to say, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. And so when you study that verse, you begin to realize that sorrowful to the point of repentance is the will of God. So when you and I need to repent of something, God's will for us is to be truly repentive. Lord, I need a change of direction on this issue. I have been going directly against your will in this area. Will you change my heart? Will you soften me? Cause me to see my sin. Cause me to understand it. Cause me to turn from that sin. The Bible's full of this kind of language for us believers. Because what happens is we find ourselves feeling farther and farther away from God. God does not leave us nor forsake us as believers, but we feel this gap between us and God at times. And so much of what we learn out of the Old Testament stories like this, we are able to apply because we realize lack of repentance destroys relationships. It just does. Because you can't go anywhere, right? You can have some surface things, but, but you can't go anywhere till, till that person or persons repent of that sin. And so your relationship just grinds to a halt in a sense. And it's sad. And that's not what God wants. God wants repentance. He desires of it. In fact, true repentance is of the will of God. But the Lord is not slow about his promises. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, as some counsel us, but he's patient towards us, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so you can kind of see what God's doing. You go, well, why don't you just show them it right now, God? God has a way of taking them through a process so that they'll put their faith and trust in him. And he often does that with us. Now, as we turn back to our text, think about Jacob. He's quite elderly here. Benjamin's probably still a young man. He was younger than Joseph, quite a bit younger than Joseph. 
Um, and they're totally ignorant of this murderous plan that they had. They, they don't know what's going on here. They're ignorant of what was going on because they've been lied to for so long. With the boys staring at each other, um, in verse 1, at the mention of Egypt, Joseph kind of snaps at them, right? Why are you staring at each other? The family business is a state of emergency. The boys are standing there looking at each other. Their guilt's prohibiting them from thinking clearly. They need to do business with Egypt, and there's, and there's no time for dialogue here. And so in a sense, Jacob's saying, as he's kind of barking at him, get it together, boys. Pack and go. This is serious. The operation is having problems, and yet here's these 10 men hiding a 20-year sin, and God's going to deal with them. Second thought, the first step of repentance is to be confronted with sin. The first step of repentance is to be confronted with sin. So God sends these brothers to Egypt to come face to face with the one they sinned against. Look at verse Three through five. Then the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Well, at Jacob's age, he was not going to let this young, beloved son of Rachel, who he loved dearly, leave his side. Benjamin was far too precious for Jacob. And we see, and as you remember, as we studied that sin of favoritism, um, that, that probably had a lot to do with the sin of unrepentance that the sons have and, and this kind of passing down of not dealing with things properly, not handling the things God has given you right. And, and so this is kind of a mess, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to keep this one because this is my favorite. You guys go over there. If something happens to you, at least it's not my youngest one. And you see why these boys' hearts are probably hard, not that they are not responsible for their own sin, but you can see this all happen. But the, four bro- the, the, brothers are, the, the ten brothers now are headed on a month-long journey from where they came from Shechem, Bethel area. It's is probably at least, at least a, a month as they make their way to the city of On. Remember, that was where um, Joseph's probably ruling. He was given the daughter of the priest there probably the center or the seat of, of Egyptian government at the time. We, we said last week it's up in the northern corner of what is now today Cairo. But Jacob's agricultural wealth was great, so the brothers needed to get there. They needed to get there and they needed to make some good relationships with the leader of Egypt and broker some deals. That was the goal to go there, right? Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Well, today, as we think about this contracting thing, we would say that this is what the government would call a foreign aid, right? This is the foreigners that are coming into another country looking for aid. The brothers arrive at the city headquarters. You can see it in the text. And they come face to face with Joseph. Now, Joseph, now think about him. He's, imm- he's, Im- he's, he's immersed into Egyptian culture. He looks Egyptian. He sounds Egyptian. Um, and it wasn't hard for him to hide behind that. And the last time they seen him, he was probably muddy, dirty, because they'd thrown him in a pit, probably beat him up, and put him on a set of camels with Midian traders, and off to Egypt he went. He looks nothing like that. And it isn't hard for Joseph to hide that. Most likely they met Joseph where other delegates of of other nations would have met seeking official contracts for food as well. You can see this. This is very governmental. Things don't change, right? When you're you're working with another country, things are going on right now, trade brokering that's going on right now, very similar. It's it's ancient world, but they're still brokering deals. And Joseph's at, at the head of all these. Now as these brothers bow before Joseph, think about what his mind must have wandered back to. Look at chapter 37. Look back real quick. Because this is where it all started. Verse 7. Actually, verse 6. Genesis 37, verse 6. He said to them, speaking to his brothers, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaves rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaves. And then the brothers are saying, are you, are you actually going to reign over us? 
And then they begin to mock him, right? Now, now, wouldn't that have come back to mind? And I think Joseph now in tune with God, he's obedient to God, he has suffered, he has not fought for his own battles, he has stood the test of, of going through without complaining and murmuring and, and yet only doing what God had asked him to do. Doubtlessly, he has seen the fulfillment of this. Look at, um, look at verse 8 with me. Excuse me, verse 7. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. So right in front of him, these brothers, they don't know who he is. This is a fulfillment of 20 year, a 20-year dream that he had, that he knew God had given him. The dream's unfolding before him. His brothers are bowing before him. And notice that grain is at the center of the dream and at the center of reality. In the dream, the sheaves of grain are bowing down. And here's the brothers asking for grain. Right as God had planned. But yet, the brothers ridiculed him mercilessly before, and now they're bowing down. I, I, I was look, reading through Nahum a while back. Um, and right in the beginning of Nahum, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. I, I agree with that. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Hmm. And then it says this, and I had to think on this for a little bit. In the whirlwind and storm is his way. In the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. And I thought about this as I, as I connected to this passage and thought through the application of that. I said, Lord, you can really stir up a storm in people's life, can't you? <laughs> this is a storm, man. Uh, uh, th- this is a problem. And God has kind of stirred this whole thing up to get them in front of them. And Joseph recognizes them. They're bowing before them. And, and, and he now begins to speak to them in a way. He's, he's going to test them in a way to see if they truly are repentive or if there can be reconciliation there. I think our first impression is when you look at this is that maybe Joseph might be getting back. But again, I, want, I don't believe that. I, I think what's on Joseph's mind is that he knows what God is doing. Remember, he named his first, ch- his first son, Messiah, for, uh, for, forgiven or for, forgotten. That's what the word, right? Messiah, forgotten. God has helped me forget my past. I think, he's, I think he's done with that. I think he's settled those things so he can go on and move. Ephraim, he's names double blessing. Remember that? So I think he's looking at this very different than what we may, when we first look at this text, that he's trying to get even in some way. That hasn't been Joseph's character all through the text. And so here he looks at this as an opportunity, an opportunity to see if there can be reconciliation. And I think he knows that God can do vengeance and he does not have to take the role of God. But yet he is in the position of the hand of God. And I believe Joseph is after repentance. I believe he's after reconciliation. He knows that he's there for a reason. And he knows that God might be saving his family through him. Look at verses 9 through 12. Joseph remembered the dream which he had had about them. And said to them, you are spies. And you have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. And then they said to him, no my lord. Mark that word. But your servant has come to buy food. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one men. We are honest men. I have a question mark in my Bible right there. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. The truth will find you out. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? And so Joseph here is he's testing them. He he begins to say, You're spies, you're 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 here, and this is a real reality. Think about this. One nation controls all of the world's food. This is a real reality. This is I mean it could be, right? What's Canaan going to do? They could mount something against us. We have the food. If, if there's a nation that owns all the wealth, I think probably other nations would try to come and figure out how to get some of that. So you protect your borders. I think Joseph's doing that. 
but he's using that to expose them, right? And, and doubtlessly, that was part of his care for the nation of Egypt, was to make sure that alliances were taken care of, trades were done right, and everything was done the way God had led him to do that. And so Joseph's accusations quickly, quickly brought out aspects of their story, right? They immediately go on the defense, claiming they're ten sons of twelve, but one's dead. And verse 13 is such a fascinating verse. Your servants are twelve in all. Sons of, of one man in the land of Canaan. They're doing pretty good right here, right? And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Now, now they didn't know that to be true at all, did they? The last time they saw him was on a, uh, a Midian caravan heading for Egypt. Their plan was to kill him. Isn't that interesting? So in their mind, maybe he was dead. They had, they had desired to murder him. It kind of has a biblical truth to it. Hate your brother? God equates that with murder. And so here comes, this stuff comes rolling out of them. It's interesting. And, and they're reluctant to admit that, that they've done anything except to themselves, not in front of anybody else. And there seems to be this pact between them to bury this truth. They are well aware of their wages of sin, aren't they? Look at verses 14 through 17. And Joseph said to them, It is as I say to you, you're spies. By this you will be tested. <laughs> this is what he's doing. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, but if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, that's, there's a lot of interesting thoughts here. Let me just put some cap on this a little bit. Certainly, Joseph was concerned about his younger brother, Benjamin. I think we know that. He loved Benjamin. He wanted to make sure Benjamin was okay. But, but I think he's after truth, and he's after repentance, and he's after reconciliation. And he wants to see if there's any remorse. So he puts him in this jail for three days um, doubtlessly listening to conversations. Now he says, now notice the text says he put them all together. Because I think he's thinking. Now what we do in prison is we would put them in separate places, right? And then try to get their stories going and figure it out. He puts them together because they're speaking in some kind of Canaan language, some kind of Hebrew language, possibly some sort of that. They're speaking Egyptian. They, they probably speak, freely speaking in this confinement. And guess who's listening to it all? He's trying to see if there's remorse. He's trying to see if they realize what they have done. The brothers are put into a prison probably much like Joseph's. It was probably a little more white-collared, more foreign dignitary-type prison. But again, this allows Joseph to listen to their conversation. And after three days, he's heard enough, right? And he brings them into his presence. And he's probably using a translator and all the way through this. But most importantly, Joseph has heard their acknowledgement of their injustices against him. He's heard them talk about this. Reuben starts out and blares out this thing. We're going to see the recording of it here in verse 21 again. And he's heard this. And so now he moves to the next step. Look at verse 18 through 21. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. That's an interesting statement he throws in there. We'll talk about that in a second. If you are honest men, remember, he's just saying, this is what you said you were. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in, in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households. Not the contracts, just your household. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified. And you will not die. And they did so. Verse 21, and we've already looked at this, but look at it again. And they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brothers. Joseph's listening to this because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So Joseph's listening. Reuben uh, reminds the brothers of their attempt, his attempt to intervene in verse 22, and the plot to murder them only to find that he was sold and a slave. And then in, in verse 18, he says, and I want you to catch this, I fear God. Now, now, why would he say that? They think he's Egyptian, which is, right, remember, polytheistic. I mean, just gods of suns and frogs and grasshoppers and everything else, right? Niles and all those things. I fear God. 
if you were repentant, you might have caught that. It doesn't seem the brothers catch that at all. But I think what he's doing is he's communicating to them that I fear God. I'm about to show you grace. And let's see how, what you do with it. What are you going to do with when grace is shown? Are you going to repent? Are you going to reconcile? Are you going to do what, what God would want you to do? Or are you going to squabble and fight and continue to lie? Look at verses 22 and following. Reuben answered and said, Did I not tell you, do not, uh, do not sin against the boy? You did not listen to me. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. There, there's a works and a guilt here, isn't there? There's no grace. There's no repentance. This is what we did. This is what we deserve. Does anybody still struggle with that stuff sometimes? Right? We, sometimes we put God on some kind of scale, Right? Now, we don't want to abuse grace. We, we, we're not some antinomist here in that fact. We just grace, grace, just live any way we want. We understand there's consequences of sin. We're going to see that as we go through this text. But there's, there's no grace in this. They, they don't understand the Yahweh that Joseph knows. They don't understand why he says, I fear God. Because I don't think they feared him. Instead, there is this, we're getting what we deserve. And that's interesting, isn't it? Notice, as we go on, verse 23, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them, meaning they weren't interpreting it to Joseph. The interpreter was to bait them into talking, right? Verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. Now, now that's what they should have done (laughs) when they see Joseph and understand this. And at a time here when they're lying and saying, we can't lie anymore. We've got to tell dad the truth. We've got to tell this man the truth. We're lying. But Joseph weeps. He, he's broken over this. He's seeking reconciliation. He knows that God has a job for him to do. The verse goes on to say, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And so we see this kind of almost type again of Joseph. We talked about this throughout his life. And, and Joseph weeps. He weeps over hard-hearted people. And, and today, as I was just tying this together, thinking, Lord, I can still see the vision of you, probably in the Mount of Olives, with a kindred valley between you, and looking at the east wall of Jerusalem, and there he weeps over Israel. And and. And there's just type after type that we see Joseph. He's certainly a sinner. He certainly needed the blood of Christ to wash back upon him at the death of Christ that was all foreshadowed in a lot of these things. Um, but we see so many things that remind us of him. He, he has a tender heart. He, he's full of grace. He wants repentance and reconciliation. And that's what our Lord always was after. But Simeon is selected by Joseph to remain as a hostage and think about this. Simeon had a cruel nature to him. Do you remember what he did? He murdered the people of Shechem. Remember that? Yeah, okay, we'll give you our daughter, but hmm, we're going to do a little exercise called circumcision. <laughs> and then he just slayed them. It's interesting. Why'd God pick Simeon to be confined here? I don't know. Maybe perhaps God was his way to Simeon doing time and, and wanting him to come to repentance for those sins as well. I don't know. That's a narrative doesn't tell us, but it's interesting that he is selected for that. And, and maybe because Joseph acknowledged his fear of God, the brothers felt, felt the peace to leave him. And uh, maybe they didn't. Maybe they said, well, good, at least I didn't have to be there. <laughs> I'm not sure, but he's left. And, and I want you to think about this. This is probably a year imprisonment. Remember, the seven years of, of bad famine. Maybe they're a year or two in this. We're not sure how far they're into this at this time. It's at least a month travel. Jacob's not budging. We're going to see that in a minute about sin and Benjamin back, it could be up to a year that Simeon is confined there. This is due in time. Three, last thought here as we wrap this up. Facing the consequences of sin without repentance. Facing the consequences of sin without repentance. Being confronted with your sin is one thing, but to come face to face with the consequences is another. Sin has consequences. And I want to just make a point here. We all sin. We do. And we either repent of that sin or we battle that for a long time. We blame shift it. We do all kinds of things. And those things mount consequences. 
And, and eventually, there, certainly God does forgive us, and, and we've been forgiven at the cross, and certainly that blood washes forward over all of our sins, but you cannot remain in sin and not expect consequences. And, and there's times where God will put you face to face with the consequences of your sin. And now they must face their father whom they've lied to for years and try to explain where Simeon is. <laughs> and oh, by the way, we got to take Benjamin back. The consequences are here. Joseph had heard enough to believe that there was an opportunity here, so he releases them. He sets into motion this plan that would encourage both repentance and reconciliation. And ultimately, this plan was to bring the family back to Egypt, right? But the brothers must face their sins. And I believe Joseph is well aware that why God had taken him through those 13 difficult years. His brothers now have bowed before him. He knew the promises of Abraham and Isaac and his father Jacob. He understood that, that most likely the interpretation of the dream that was given to Abraham that, that they would be descendants in a foreign land for 400 years. Uh, he, he, he might have all that. He he's, he's has this, though he doesn't understand this Christ-type role, but he understands what he's gone through. He was sold for the price of a slave. He, he suffered and was abandoned by those around him. And yet he was sent to rescue their souls, rescue them. And that's what Christ did, right? He was abandoned by all. The Bible says that night all fled him and left him. He suffered greatly. And he died alone to rescue us. And, and so I think Joseph sees all of this, that God has a plan in his life. Now look at verse 25 through 28 with me. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. He's going up and above, right? He's pouring grace out. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain, their grain and departed from there. As one, as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder, fodder, this was a good steward of his animal, I like that, at, at the lodging place somewhere along the way where they stopped, he saw his money and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another saying, now listen to this, what is this that God has done to us? See, notice the contrast here between the generosity and the grace of Joseph and the reaction of the brothers to blame God for their problems. What has God done to us? What a thought. Where does that come from? That you equate a major problem, uh, well, actually, that you equate a grace, a gift, to be a problem. You can see where their, their repentance has distorted their view. And they're still focused on trying to get out of the trouble. Je, uh, Je, uh, Joseph has showed grace, and, and he's, he's focusing on repentance and restoration. These boys are just trying to figure out how to get out of trouble, and the discovery of this money in their grain sack shocks them. And instead of seeking to understand what God did for them, they are instead afraid and wonder what God is going to do to them. This is such a difference. We, we often see this in counseling when we try to help people work through difficulties. It comes down to their view of God. That you're never going to get through difficult marriages or difficult struggles that you have in life till your view of God is correct. And so we work, you know, well, you guys talk about a lot of theology and doctrine. Yes, it's our doctrine that drives our life. Doctrine helps husbands love as Christ loved. Doctrine helps wives submit unto the Lord as an act of worship because of their love for God and what he has accomplished. And, and when that's twisted around, when our views of, of everything is surrounded about us, it's all about me, what I need, what, what God hasn't done for me or what God's causing problems, everything becomes distorted. And you begin to look at problems not as God would want you to. And these boys are doing exactly that. But in all this, don't miss this, God was behind all this. He was awakening them there to the sin. And grace was bringing them to confession and ultimately forgiveness. And guilt is a horrible burden to bear. The harder the heart, the longer the guilt remains. What a mess. Could you imagine the long journey to Bethel? It doesn't seem that they had attained the contracts for grain that the family business needed. 
It seems they only carry enough grain for their families. One of the brothers is now a hostage in Egypt. The ruler is asking for Benjamin. They have been accused of being spies. Now their money is in their pouch, in their grain sack. The pouch of money is in their, in their grain sacks. And, and, and they know dad's going to blow a gasket when they get there. This was a long month driving, uh, riding home. It is, it, the consequence is a sinner right in front of them. Look at this last set of verses here. And when they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told them all, they didn't tell them everything, all that happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive. Isn't it interesting when you lie, you've got to keep it going. And they're doing everything they can to keep this thing going. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. You'll get the contracts you want, right? Now, It came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. I kind of envisioned it this way. They're over here telling Dad the bad news. And the servants are over unloading the grain, and they're going, hey, do you guys know all of your money's here? (laughs) And look at their response. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. This is not going well. (laughs) Their father Jacob said, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He's already got Simeon dead. And, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke up to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death. Wow, what twisted thinking. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for, you brothers, for, for, your, for, for his brother is dead. And he alone is left. Look at the the twisted thinking of dad even here. He's got 10 other brothers. If harm shall befall him on your journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Well, here we begin to see a lot of sin and consequences all spilling out. As they rehearse the story of their father, all that took place, they begin to spin the story in their favor, don't they? Not just one brother had money in their bag, but all the brothers did. And as they're spinning this story, here comes this, this money. And, and, the, and the, the Hebrew has the idea of a heart dropping when they heard that. Like, oh, almost like you lost your breath. You know, this is, and here's what it means. I wrote in my notes. It says, they are charged as spies. Now they could be charged as thieves. <laughs> it just got worse. See, sin, consequences of catching up with them. In verse 36 through 38, we begin to see Jacob's view and some of the worst character flaws that he has. He says, all these things are against me. People who don't repent who always see it as somebody else's problem. It's her problem. It's his problem. It's somebody else's problem. This is where they end up. This is why they don't have joy. This is why they're always frustrated. It's because why is this all happening to me? Jacob can only think of himself. He seems to crawl into this self-pity depression. He becomes unwilling to deal with a problem. He bemoans the trials and hardens his heart against the obvious need and the obvious solution. You've got to send Benjamin. You can't leave another son there to die. Our whole operation is going to die. The obvious solution is right before him, but his hard heart and his effects of his sin are now in front of him. And Joseph had put this together by the leading of God, this perfect plan, a way to expose his family's sin and then to drive them into his protection. But the brothers are as selfish as their father. They blame the ruler of Egypt, which is Joseph. They said that he was unfair and unreasonable. They acted like they were truthful with Joseph, and they lied. And Joseph was cruel and unjust to them, and it was just the opposite. And that's what sin does. It twists your thinking. Notice they call Joseph the man. 
He was a man. He was the only man in the whole conversation. The rest of them were boys. They even called him Lord several times. But God is definitely working here. He's going to bring, around, bring about restitution and repentance and reconciliation. The only thing that they can produce is a small amount of remorse and, and some fear of, of what could happen here. But finally, in, in, this is sad, but Reuben just burst out with this strong emotion and vows to bring Benjamin back, and he offers up the death of his two sons. It is amazing where they were at. And where sin takes people who know there's a Yahweh. These brothers knew there was a Yahweh. They knew there was a God of Abraham and and Isaac and their father Jacob. They'd heard the stories. They knew the truths of him. And yet this is what comes out of them when they're squeezed. Sin takes you to the worst places, brothers and sisters. We must repent. And so he offers up the death of his sons. It's, It's a messed up thinking. And most likely, Jacob did not take Reuben seriously. In fact, if you study Reuben's life, he's really kind of from this way and out. He's kind of the out. This, whatever this did, the family didn't respect this. But the passage ends this way. With a family in disarray, there's no plan to recover Simeon. There's no plan to hold off further disaster. The, family is, the famine is raging on for years to come. The supplies are running out. Their hand will be forced to return to Egypt. Jacob is grieving to the point of death. The brothers are not repentive, and God's plan is working. Because he will bring about his will despite us. And if you ever learn anything out of this text, repent. And don't make God take you through some of these things. He wants us to walk with him. Repent. Find joy. Father, thank you for the reminder here. We're we're left between a couple of chapters here, Lord, but we know you're at work. Despite the sin of man and the consequences that are, are just a mess, and as we leave them, Lord, they're there staring at each other again. People are in prison. Depression is all over the place. They're accused of spies and thieves. Everybody's going to die if they don't get food. It's a mess, Lord. But you are in the whirlwind. You are in the dust. You are in all that, Lord. They're bringing about your will. And we thank you that even in our lives when they become a mess because we don't repent, you're there to bring us out of that mess. And so I pray that we would repent and turn to you. We would seek reconciliation with you and reconciliation with others, Lord, if we have caused the problems, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would first look at ourselves, not like the brothers who would only look to the problems of other else and that they were supposedly honest men when they lied, Lord. But we would not be like that. But we would be like a Joseph who desired to please the Lord, even in difficult circumstances. Help us live that way, Lord. There's great blessing, great Uh, glory to you and we feel the benefit of that Lord in our own lives so Lord thank you for this message Lord root these things in our heart in Jesus name Amen